I have in my hand a shard of glass. You can't see it from where you're sitting, or probably from home even. Maybe you can see the reflection, but it's there. As you can imagine, there's a story uh, behind this little shard of glass that we'll get to in a few moments. But you know, this morning will be my final message in the Gospel of John. The next week, Zach will conclude our study of John's Gospel. And we, if you believe it or not, we studied, started this study in the fall of 2019 when we were completing this building. And it's been a, a, just a fascinating journey walking through John's Gospel. Prior to this study, we had uh, gone through it in 2009. And uh, we've just been really blessed and encouraged by studying John's Gospel. But you know, whenever we study the Bible, we essentially end up asking a really simple question. And to say it maybe very simply, we, we ask the question, so what? Right? Or maybe a little less irreverently, what difference does it make? As we study a passage of Scripture, what is the impact on it? Uh, we might ask this morning as we think about a particular passage today where we will read of the events of the death of Jesus, what difference does the crucifixion make in my day-to-day? in my real life, or maybe we could ask it this way. How does Jesus' death on the cross help me or help us in our jobs? How does it help us as we respond to perhaps anxiety, stress, anger, the real stuff of life? How does it help us in our questions about sex and marriage? What about political issues, like how we respond to climate change or international politics, or a host of other things, both big and and small? Or perhaps a a better question might be, can the cross speak to these things? Does the death of Jesus give us anything for processing the real stuff of life? Now, I'll tell you ahead of time, the answer is, of course, yes. But we're going to unpack the how this morning, and hopefully the Lord will speak uh, something to you uniquely as as we do that. As one person said, all that the Scripture contains is truth, but the Scripture doesn't contain all truth. In other words, the, the, the Bible does not tell you uh, how to change the oil on your particular model of car or the best recipe for chocolate chip cookies. And again, not to be irreverent, but the Bible speaks to, to a particular thing, namely the gospel, but does that gospel inform everyday life? And so we're going to read this uh, it's pretty significant portion of Scripture this morning. It begins with John's words, then they took Jesus away. In, in other words, The upper room discourse and that intimate special time with the disciples has passed. Jesus' betrayal in the garden and his arrest is over. The trials before the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders are completed. And Jesus is now led away to be crucified. So let's read John chapter 19. We begin in verse 17. John says, Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what was called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. And so they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. 
This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciples, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, and so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true and he knows he's telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also another scripture says they will look on the one they have pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the fragrant spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where Jesus was crucified, and a tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. Let's pray. God and Father, we, we're approaching a text of Scripture this morning that in some manner seems the sacred among the sacred as it describes the very death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask this morning as we explore this text, as we make comment on it, Lord, that you would guide our conversation, that it would be a dialogue as your spirit instructs us and we speak, so to speak, in our hearts, Lord, as we respond. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine the scriptures in your own way somehow miraculously to each one of us in a unique and special way to what we need to hear. Lord, we want to, as Paul says to Timothy, divide the word of God correctly. We want to apply it aptly to our lives. Would you help us in that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we begin with a, cro- a question about the sort of the relevance or the pertinence of the cross to speak to our lives, the death of Jesus specifically. And I want to answer that question by asking another question, perhaps a little bit of a different perspective. What if the cross, the death of Jesus on the cross, was the starting point or the center of my life, not in a, relig- a religious add-on or tack-on to the categories of my life? 
What if I viewed all of life's issues through the lens of Jesus and what he's done for me and what he's given for me on the cross, not in a separate compartment? You see, that's really the thing that John wants to get at in his gospel as he writes. He says it at the end. It's been our thesis statement. He says it in this passage here, that he's testifying to these things, that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that I would believe. And so John in this passage is going to make the case that Jesus' sacrifice was endured for you by Jesus willingly, voluntarily, at his own volition. He's going to make the case that Jesus' death for you on the cross was governed by the sovereignty of God for you down to the smallest detail and even things that seem coincidental or consequential. He's going to show that Jesus for you fulfilled all the prophecy necessary for his death to be effective for your salvation, to fulfill the mandates of of God's justice and wrath and so forth. Finally, he'll make it very clear that Jesus' death for you and for me was enough. It was complete for us. You know, I, I mentioned that I've got this shard of glass in my pocket. And again, you can't see it from where you're seated or from home perhaps, but it's here. I picked up this little shard of glass on the way in this morning on the sidewalk outside of the worship center. And I know its source. You see, one of our staff members about a week and a half ago, I think it was, who shall remain remain nameless, but who leads us in worship every Sunday, uh, (laughs) dropped a Pyrex dish on the stamped concrete pavement out there. And in the moments immediately following that, he and I, we picked up the large pieces and kind of got them cleared away. And then over the next couple of days, find a piece here and there. And then I was on the phone last week. I tend to make my phone calls uh, on the move. And so I was kind of pacing around outside on that sort of stone pavement area. And I picked up about a dozen pieces, sent Johnny a picture. They're still there. This morning I picked up, I think it's the last one, this little piece of glass. And we'll come back to exactly what that means for you and me, but suffice it to say that it sparked in me something about what I think God wants to do in you and in me this morning. That each one of us comes to church this morning with a shard of glass, as it were. And our big point this morning is that Jesus' death for us provides not only forgiveness for sins, and we don't want to minimize or diminish that. That is the crux of our faith, that the cross provides forgiveness and eternal life. But more than that, it works in me, something that is transformative, even as we sang this morning. It changes my desires and my passions, and it gives me a new way to live. Listen to what John Piper says. Now, a little bit of a long quote here, so hang with me, but he says this. He says, once we had no delight in God, And Christ was just a vague historical figure. Perhaps some of you say this morning, yeah, that's kind of me. What we enjoyed, Piper says, was food and friendships and productivity and investments and vacations and hobbies and games and reading and shopping and sex and sports and art and TV and travel, but not God. He was an idea, even a good one, and a topic for discussion, but he was not a treasure of delight. And those of you who are believers in Jesus, you'll identify with this next sentence. Then something miraculous happened. It was like the opening of the eyes of the blind in a golden dawn. First, the stunned silence before the unspeakable beauty of holiness. 
and then a shock and terror that we actually loved darkness. Think of the beginning of our study of John's gospel, where John in John chapter 1 makes the case that Jesus is the light of the world who's come into the world, and yet men loved darkness rather than light. Piper continues, and then a settling stillness of joy that this is the soul's end. The quest is over. We would give anything if we might be granted to live in the presence of this glory forever and ever. And then faith, the confidence that Christ has made a way for me, a sinner, to live in his glorious fellowship forever, the confidence that if I come to God through Christ, he will give me the desire of my heart to share in his holiness and to behold his glory. But before the confidence comes the craving, before decision comes delight, before trust becomes the discovery of treasure. Behind the repentance that turns away from sin and behind faith that embraces Christ is the birth of a new taste, a new longing, a new passion from the, for the pleasure of God's presence. And Piper says so eloquently the case that we're making this morning that what Jesus accomplishes in the cross is, is lavish grace beyond our forgiveness for sins. It's, it's that he works something new in us, new passions, new desires, those that are his and a new way to live. And so we'll look at this passage in five major movements. We're gonna, we're gonna go through them pretty quickly. We could spend an entire Sunday morning on any one of these sections, but he begins with this idea that John does that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus is led out to Golgotha in Aramaic, the place of the skull. In the Anglicized Latin, it's Calvary. And he's led to this place, and, and essentially it's a place that is synonymous with death. Now, it's the, really the hymn writers that kind of have it in our minds a, a hillside more than the scripture. In fact, from John's gospel, it appears this may even been in a valley. There's a garden there, as we learned at the end. And certainly there are proposed sites. If you've been to the, to the Middle East, uh, in like Gordon's Calvary and so forth. But where, no matter where exactly this place is, it is a place that John makes clear through his language. It is synonymous with death. Jesus goes to the place of death for you and me. And in this place, as he is crucified, Pilate hangs a placard above him. There's, there's an amazing irony to, to uh, Pilate's placard on a human level and on a divine level. On a human level, this is sort of Pilate's revenge. Pilate, to a certain degree, has sort of uh, been coerced and manipulated by the crowd and the Jewish leadership in a whole bunch of circumstances. Now, we know from the sovereignty of God, nothing is coincidental. But chances are that, that Pilate's pretty ticked at how all this has proceeded. And so he writes this message. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And of course, the Jewish leadership, they gripe and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you've got to qualify that. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. It's his way of zinging the Jewish leadership, of twisting the knife, so to speak. That the very thing they didn't want people to know, they wanted to be quieted and Jesus to be executed and done away with, is broadcast. Understand, this is like the internet of the time. It's in the three languages that are spoken by tons of people. It's right outside the city in a place of a lot of traffic. And that brings us to the second irony. And it's the irony from the point of view of God himself that in God's sovereignty, this was God's sovereign way of declaring to the whole world that his son really is the Messiah 
the king of the universe. And in as much as this is then recorded in Scripture, that placard, as it were, advertises the message that God has about his son down through the ages and to people innumerable. He is the king of kings. He who hangs on a cross. And so Jesus the king is crucified. You know, it may even be in your own life that you've been asked this question. There's sort of a, at times an underlying question or a mystery about the cross and the culture, right? Why do Christians put on their buildings and hang around their necks in some cases an ancient icon and symbol of torture and death? F.F. Bruce answers this beautifully in this little quote. He says, The crucified one is the true king, the kingliest king of all. Because it is he who is stretched out on the cross, he turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory, and he reigns from the tree. Jesus reigns from the tree, certainly down through the ages and even into the hearts of those who would follow him. But John makes the case that that happens even now. So Jesus is crucified, and John moves to the scene or the events that are happening sort of at the foot of the cross, and he immediately contrasts this little group of soldiers with a little group of women. The soldiers here are, it it appears almost uh, mundane, it's almost mundane for them. You could envision that they'd probably participated in, in a host of crucifixions that this was just another one. And so in a very trite, kind of trivial way, they're just seated or standing, whatever they are, and they're gambling over the clothes of Jesus. Like it's no big deal. But again, in the sovereignty of God, in the details, that what's happening in the mundane is also at a cosmic level because it's the fulfillment of this prophecy in Psalm 22 that they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. One scholar notes this, that the sinful Adam was clothed by God in the Garden of Eden, and the sinless last Adam was unclothed by wicked men. Jesus hangs. He's been brought to the place of death. He's been mocked. He's humiliated. Folks, there's likely no loincloth. He is exposed and humiliated for you and me. But then there's the women, and the women are there mourning and grieving the one that they love. We know from the other gospels that Mary's sister, there's the three Marys and then Salome. And they are there grieving their Lord, their teacher, their rabbi, even son. And this is where we see one of the most fascinating things that we've seen consistently about Jesus, that in this moment, as he is crucified, as he is hanging there, he ministers. He ministers. He gives, as it were, in almost an adoptive sense, his mother to John and vice versa. You see, it's as if we, through the ministry of Christ, are clothed from the cross, so to speak, even as he is humiliated and naked. Now, we know this theologically, that it is Christ's innocent and his shed blood on our behalf that we then inherit his, his perfect righteousness is imputed unto us in the cross. Isaiah says it this way, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exult in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. And what Isaiah writes hundreds of years earlier, the how of that, that is through Jesus' death on the cross. But as we think about application this morning, 
We are clothed from the cross in this manner as well. Jesus' humiliation means that you and I can face the places of defeat in our lives because he understands he's gone before. He's been humiliated and faced defeat and death in a profound, profound way. Even in his humiliation, he urges Mary and John toward mutual care and community. As I entrust myself first to Christ as the one who truly understands me, and secondly, to Christian community where I can find practical help. Back to my shard of glass. I have a shard of glass in my hand. You can't see it from where you sit, but it's there. And Jesus in our lives is just like that Pyrex dish that God picks up the pieces in a way that only he can do. But even as Christians, we lose sight of the fact that at times that there are still shards of glass there in our brokenness and our need for continual healing and sanctification in the process of our growth in Christ. And a shard of glass, like I found it this morning, can just be laying benignly on the sidewalk. You might say that in your own life. Yeah, there's some shards of glass in me. There's some anger that I'm not able to get away from. There's some fear. I feel weighed down by a stress and anxiety nobody else knows. There's brokenness in a friendship that had been deep and intimate for years. There's tension and strain and stress in my marriage. There's distrust between my boss and I, and we used to have this great relationship. But it's just there. But those shards of glass can also cause immense damage if we step on them or if they get to the right place. Part of what Jesus does, even in his greatest place of need, is he clothes from the cross by giving us Christian community. By the way, this has been the pattern of Jesus from the beginning, right? In the upper room, what's the first thing he does is he gathers with his disciples, he takes off his outer garment, he puts on the garment of the servant, he washes their feet. He's praying and he prays uh, for his disciples primarily and for you and I, those who will believe in, in him through, his, through their message. Here again, in his hour of need, he clothes us from the cross. His death provides not just forgiveness, but in his lavish grace, works in a transformative way something new in me and gives us a new way to live and respond. What does this mean practically? Over the summer here at GBC, we're going to wrestle around this issue of what does it mean to be a Christian and struggle with mental health? Or where, where, how do we as Christians bring help and healing to mental health? Maybe that's in our lives, but maybe it's in someone that we love. And so you'll hear things, as the elders have talked, uh, you'll hear uh, references, and we're going to put greater resources into our Celebrate Recovery program. That's already begun. Because we believe Celebrate Recovery is a powerful ministry that, by the way, all of us can use. Myself included. Because we all have, in the language of CR, hurts, habits, and hang-ups. At the end of this month, our women's ministry will speak to the issue of mental health and walking with Jesus. And then in July, we're going to spend some time with one of our trusted counseling partners talking about the issue, what is the place in the life of the believer of biblical pastoral counseling and biblical clinical counseling? Because I think there's a stigma in the Christian community when it comes to counseling. How do we do this? 
how does Jesus clothe us from the cross in the areas where we need help, where there are still those unspoken, perhaps, shards of glass? And so we're going to wrestle with that a little bit this summer. Well, moving to the next section, John now sort of illustrates through what Jesus says and what he does in the cross, Jesus' humanity, his victory, and his divinity or his deity. It begins with this passage where Jesus, knowing that things were, were finishing up, so to speak, that he, he cries out, I'm thirsty. Or in some of your versions of the Bible, say, I thirst. And in so doing, John, is remember, everything that John does, he doesn't record all six statements of Jesus from the cross. He doesn't record all of Jesus' miracles. John is very pointed and, and intentional that he records the things he records that we might believe. And so in, in highlighting Jesus' thirst, he's highlighting Jesus' humanity. That Jesus thirsts just like you thirst. In this case, physically, but certainly mentally, emotionally as well. He is human. He goes to the cross as a human being. And in the context of the time that John writes this gospel, probably around AD 90, there were some early heresies and false teachings, namely docetism and and Gnosticism, that were teaching that Jesus was not fully human. He appeared to be human. He was God, but he appeared to be human, but he wasn't fully human. And John is saying, no, 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 no. He thirsts. And it's important for me, it's important for you that we understand that Jesus, as Hebrews tells us, has walked through this life with everything that we face yet without sin. So that he can go to the cross and be a sufficient savior. In so doing, as the text tells us, Jesus also knows he's fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. It says that he's thirsty to the point of his roof, or his tongue sticking to the roof of his mouth. And in Psalm 69, at the end of Psalm 69, 21, that they give him wine vinegar to drink. In Jesus' humanity, it's a noted paradox that the one who calls himself the water of life says, I thirst for you and for me. The second thing that he cries out, and this is in a completely different manner, he cries out in the Greek, it's one word, tetelestai. And John, John and the other gospels make it clear that this is not a cry of, uh, of defeat. This is a cry of victory. Jesus shouts it, tetelestai. And everyone with an earshot would have heard it. In the, in the English, it's, it is finished. But this is Jesus' declaration of victory. And we know from uh, papyrus tax receipts that are found from this time, that have that word tetelestai written on it, that it literally renders debt is paid, paid in full. Jesus is saying everything that was necessary, saying this proplectically, if you will, or sort of in advance of his death that will follow very shortly, that everything necessary for our salvation is accomplished. It is done. It is paid in full. We sing that song, right? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He's manifesting 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we, we might become the righteousness of God. It is a cry, a declaration of victory. And then John says that bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And it's notable that all four gospel writers say it in this manner. All four gospel writers make it clear that Jesus gives up his spirit. Death does not take him. He surrenders to death of his own will and his own volition and his own time at only the point where our salvation has been accomplished. 
then he gives his life in surrender to the will of his heavenly Father. Jesus is fully human. He is victorious. And he is fully God. He is an able Savior. In real quick fashion here, there are two prophecies that are immediately fulfilled in the next section. Now, there's the, the Jews urge that uh, the, the bodies be taken down, and we'll talk about that in a second in terms of the, the Sabbath that is coming. But it was the custom of the time that they would break the legs of those who had been crucified, and that was so that they were unable to push themselves up to fill their lungs with air any longer. They would have to rely on the strength of their upper body, which was already waning because they'd been on the cross for a while. And so they would die of asphyxiation and and suffocation, essentially, unable to get oxygen in their lungs. By the way, crucifixion is a brutal, brutal death. But it's interesting that the gospel writers don't focus on that. It's, It's where we get the word excruciating, from the cross. But the gospel writers don't focus on that. They focus on what Jesus has accomplished for us spiritually. And so there's a prophecy in Psalm 34 that he protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. And this harkens back to the Old Testament law, that in the Old Testament, the Passover lamb was to be this precious sort of family lamb, an unblemished lamb whose blood was shed and its bones were not to be broken. John tells us at the very beginning of this gospel, when he sees Jesus coming, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the writer of the Hebrews tells us that he is the one sacrifice for all time, for all people. There is no longer the need for the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and turtle doves and so on and so forth. Jesus fulfills all of the imagery and intent and temporariness of those sacrifices. And so in fulfillment of that scripture in that prophecy in Psalm 34, John wants us to know they didn't break his legs And John references Zechariah 12. They pierced his side, and he says, and they will look on the one they have pierced. Well, as we conclude this morning, the section ends with the burial of Jesus. The burial of Jesus had me reflecting this week on sort of the the notion of who it should have been. There's there's been a a, a bit of that at the end of John's gospel, of of who it should have been. We talked a couple weeks ago that Jesus, as he faces Annas and then Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, that he appears before the very people who it should have been, knowing the Old Testament, who welcomed and celebrated him as Messiah. And yet they were the ones that tried him to the point of crucifixion. That as he goes through the process of trial and crucifixion, that it was those who it should have been, Peter, James, John, his disciples, even the larger group of followers, that should have been with him to the end. And in fact, there's this sort of melodramatic irony to this scene that the, the disciples who'd almost beat their breast in arguing about who, would love, who loved him the most and who would go with him to the very end, that they have, they're gone, they've scattered. Peter has denied him. And here it is, Joseph, a Sadducee, and Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who bury our Lord and Savior with haste and with great care. You see, the Jewish Passover was, or or Sabbath rather, was coming. 
And John says parenthetically that this was a special Sabbath. Why? Because it was a Sabbath that also occurred in the same week as Passover. You remember that Thursday night as Jesus is with the disciples, they celebrate the Passover meal together. And now it's Friday as Jesus is being crucified. It's the day of preparation. And so by sundown in the Jewish way of measuring the day, these bodies need to be taken down that they can observe the Sabbath. And so there's haste. John actually says that the garden is in the place where Jesus is crucified and they use it for at least one reason because it's close by and the day of preparation is coming to an end. There's both haste and great care. But I couldn't help but reflect on this idea of who it should have been in terms of application. You see, the abandonment of Jesus over and over again reminds me that I am called to faithfulness. I am who it should have been or should be to speak on his behalf, to live for him, to be obedient to him. In other words, my faith in Jesus is not meant to be something that's relegated to a specific compartment of my life, but rather integrated into every area of my life. And I suspect on some level we all struggle with that. But I love how, how uh, Paul Tripp says this. He talks about the rhythms of, of life and faith. He says, we rest in God's presence and constant care vertically, and we toil with our hands, busy at the work we've been commanded to do horizontally. We rest in our work and work in our rest. And at times we work because we believe God who has it, is at work calls us to work. At other times we rest from our work because we do believe that the work that needs to be done, only God can do. We are the ones who it should be to be doing the very work of God and caring for one another and bearing witness to the death of Jesus for all mankind. So as we prepare for communion this morning, I want to encourage us to think in your own minds of that little shard of glass that you carry. You see, I have a shard of glass in my heart. You can't see it from where you sit, but it is there. And Jesus knows and understands. It's why he went to the cross, not only to forgive my sin, but also to work in me new passions, new desires, and to call me to a new way to live. You see, if I begin with the cross, if you begin with the cross, if we view all of life, even the issues that we've talked around or touched on this morning through the lens of a God who becomes flesh, who lives sinlessly, who fulfills the law, who honors and dignifies all of humanity from the lame and the blind and the crippled to even the prostitute and the tax collector and the marginalized, to a God who dies in the place of guilty sinners even me, a Jesus who satisfies the righteous justice of God and who allows me to be fully forgiven and you to be fully forgiven, then how I view and respond to everything changes. So I want to ask you two questions this morning as we conclude, and you can go ahead and get your, your cup and your bread if you're at home, whatever you've prepared for that, ready. Number one, do you know him? Do you know him this morning? Maybe you came in here this morning agreeing with Piper's words that he's sort of a historical figure, but who is this Jesus? And if the Spirit of God has been 
laying heavy on your heart today that this is the day, as Paul says, today is the day of salvation. I encourage you as I pray this morning to pray with me. Give your life and your heart to Jesus. He will be faithful to pick up every shard of glass as you grow with him over time. And if nothing else, when we are with him in eternity. Second question, if you are a Christian this morning, what is different in your life because of the death of Jesus? It's the question I've been asking myself, maybe from two points of view. Number one, what's different in your life from before you started to follow Jesus? What has changed? What are those new passions and desires and new way to live that God gave you that you can look back on and say, yes, I see the evidence of Jesus' death in my life. The other angle would be measured against your friends and loved ones and relatives who don't know Christ. What is different in your life because Jesus is a part of your life? And what is something that's perhaps that festering shard of glass that as we come before him this morning, we say, God, I need help with this one. We're gonna sing a song in a few minutes that references that he makes me and you, a wretch, his treasure. That his death brings me life because he has paid the ransom that I owe. And so we're going to take this little, I'm going to give thanks in just a second. We're going to take this little piece of bread in remembrance of him. If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, we'd encourage you to let this pass. This is for those, this is a sacred time for those who know and love Jesus. But more importantly, I'll lead a prayer that will include the opportunity for you to give your life for Jesus. Do it now and then take the bread with us. And then we'll do likewise with the cup. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you this morning humbled by this, Lord, this passage of Scripture is way beyond us in the sense of the depth of truth. And Lord, we've only touched the surface. But God, I pray that By the power of your Holy Spirit, there's been something to impact each one of us. Lord, I want to pray this morning on behalf of those gathered here online or in this room who've never given their lives to you, Jesus. And so, Lord, would you receive them into your kingdom? Lord, would you help them to step away from the patterns of sin and selfishness and rebellion in their lives and to fully surrender and give their lives to you. Lord, there are some in this room who have finally understood what your death was about and want to begin walking with you. They want to lay down their lives before you and surrender to what you did on the cross, recognizing that when you died on that cross, when your blood was shed, you did it for them that they could be forgiven and free and you call them into a new life. And so, Lord, would that, would that begin this moment? And Lord, as seasoned Christians, we need these reminders as well. That it's not because we're awesome or we do amazing things, because it, but it's because you are awesome. And you have done the amazing thing of sending your son to die for us, that we are forgiven and free. So we take this little piece of bread in obedience to you, obeying what you've asked us to do until you come again. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take the bread together. Let's give thanks for the cup. Lord Jesus, you were beaten and bruised. You were stripped naked. You were humiliated. You were led to the place of death. You were spat upon. You were mocked. You were made fun of. But Jesus, it was the shedding of your blood 
the shedding of blood of someone who had never sinned, who had fulfilled every law and obeyed every command. And Jesus, you did that for me and you did that for each one gathered here, each one viewing online this morning. You shed your blood that we could be forgiven in our place. And Lord, we marvel at that. We worship you this morning. And so as you, ask, you have asked us to do until you come again, we take this little cup of grape juice as a symbolic reminder that your blood was shed to recenter us on your death and your cross. Work in us, O oh God, even as we take this cup together in Jesus' name. Amen.